Okay, welcome back to the Rising Edge DNO podcast for a second season. Owen, we made it. We've been commissioned to produce at least five more of these discussions all about the world of DNO. Excited to be back? I'm very excited to be back. Um, excited to be commissioned and it's good to be back. Great first series. Yeah. How, how many hours do you think we spent recording? Five? At least five hours recording five episodes, I imagine, yeah. People say it takes about 10,000 hours to <laughs> master something. Well, I think I've probably done the 10,000 hours. I'm not sure you have. Yeah, well, I'm thinking... So, well, I'm only thinking that. I'm thinking it's another 9,995 9, hours, uh, and then I'll be really good at it. So, yeah, we'll see how we go with the next five anyway. That's great to be back. Yeah, it's really good to be back. Glad to be uh, talking all things DNO again. So, if you are new to this podcast, my name is Richard Kutcher. My background is a captive insurance journalist, and I produce a few insurance podcasts as well. And I'll be introducing each of the episodes with Owen Dacey, who you just heard from, head of claims at Ryan. Edge, And the best way to make sure you get every new episode downloaded straight to your device when it is released is to subscribe or follow us on any podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for Rising Edge DNO Podcast and hit subscribe or follow. Owen, where do you listen to, uh, to yourself talking about DNO? Firstly, I just use the Apple app to listen to podcasts. Um, I'm a fan of all the big ones, but forget Stephen Bartlett, Joe Rogan. For me, it's the Global Captive podcast, of course. <laughs> Steve Bloomer's Washing, which for people out there who don't know, it's a Derby County fans podcast, passing the pod there. Um, and I did. Tr- I have tried to find a few uh, podcasts that is dedicated to DNA, but I was... There's bits and bobs out there, but I was surprised I was unable to locate one. So it's a it's a large it's a heavy burden we carry, but we carry it dutifully. Yeah, there are there are a few, and I think there are lots of there are lots and lots of good insurance podcasts out there. And what they tend to do is um, address lots of different areas in one podcast uh, so one episode might be on cyber one episode might be on dno etc but it's great that rise and edge are doing a, a dedicated dno podcast similar to my global captive podcast it's focused on one topic you know exactly what you're going to get i think when you tune in uh, from different perspectives so as we said we are back for a second season owen what's the plan what have we got lined up for the next couple of months uh, to take our dno conversations forward yeah so series one the focus was on risk mitigation for directors and officers in respect of the various topics we talked about, so securities litigation, cybersecurity, ESG and regulatory investigations. For Series 2, it's a bit it's a bit more of a mixed bag. The aim is still to, prov- to provide education and share knowledge and insights from, from experts in their fields and to provide listeners with some real tangible things they can go away and, uh, and think about more or implement. In terms of the guests, we've got guests from... Uh, the international law firms uh, Steptoe and Johnson, Castlewit, Benson, Torres, and from the insurance world, we have uh, the head of advocacy and FinPro, head of management liability claims at Marsh. We also speak with uh, the head of group litigation from the litigation funder Augusta and Co. And lastly, and definitely most leastly, <laughs> um, you have to put up with me for an entire episode, and um, so I apologise for that in advance. And how about those topics then? What kind of topics are we going to be covering? First episode is on cryptocurrency, some of the risks around crypto for companies and directors and officers. We then have a set of three episodes, which is uh, the the aim in those is kind of to provide the inside track on various parts of the claims ecosystem, starting with the funder, then moving on to the client and the insured defendant, and then the insurer, and the purpose of those three is really to demystify the process as much as possible for those uh, people who aren't involved in this world. And then we 
we finally we go out with a bang we have a two-parter on litigation first part is around risk mitigation and litigation second part's about more to do with tactics and strategy when you are in litigation yeah having recently re- uh, recorded that litigation two-parter i can attest that we really will be going out with a big bang there is lots of great content lined up for listeners and all the guests have been an absolute privilege to record with once again so as you mentioned our first episode of this second season is on crypto increasingly entering our lives and society in various ways and of course that extends to businesses as well why owen did you want to address uh, crypto from the kind of dno lens so crypto yeah I, I just think it's a it's a fascinating topic 2021 was a huge year for cryptocurrency we see it hit some all-time highs and of course there's been some drops too but what we also witnessed was more institutional buy-in from large companies and governments and at the same time you have governments and around the world grappling with it as an alternative form of currency looking to develop regulatory frameworks but really the industry's only in its infancy really and it's, it's constantly evolving so it's a hot topic and, and those hot topics are often topics for directors and officers of companies who are kind of navigating their way through this world so that's that's why we wanted to do a podcast on it and who do we have lined up then to talk us through the the risk relating to corporates and their directors and officers on on crypto yeah we've got a great cast of lists from uh, the law firm stepto and johnson ridiculously impressive resumes uh, i wish i could go through them all but i don't have time so i'll do my best to hit the highlights we've got Alan Cohn, who's co-lead of Stepto's blockchain and cryptocurrency practice in Washington, D.C. He advises clients on a range of blockchain and cryptocurrency-related issues. We've got Rachel Cannon, another partner who focuses more on trial work, investigations, white-collar defense, and complex litigation, but she also works extensively in, in cryptocurrency matters. We've got Nate Kritzer, uh, a partner, seasoned trial lawyer who who focuses on litigation again and covering all types of different disputes like securities and shareholder litigation. And finally, we've got Charles Michael, a partner specialising again in litigation. And Charles is really focusing on high stakes disputes and arbitration and again has lots of experience in, in the world of cryptocurrency. Okay, great. Well, let's get stuck into it then. And Alan is going to begin by explaining some of the basics of what crypto assets are, how they're stored accessed and traded. Basically, a a crypto asset or a cryptocurrency is a cryptographic entity that's native to a blockchain, which means that basically it's a digital representation that allows you to do peer-to-peer transfer of value. I can give you one digital asset and I'm not sending you a copy and we don't need uh, somebody in the middle, it replicates me handing you a piece of currency. Second, there's a distributed ledger of transactions. Many computers uh, maintain a ledger of transactions rather than a central ledger keeper. And there's some type of decentralized validation mechanism, probably mining or other things like that. This is the way that, that transactions are validated in the absence of having a central ledger keeper. And so what that does is it allows you to have a, a token, a cryptographic token that can represent value um, or it can be a rep- itself, like Bitcoin, or it can be a representation of some other type of value, like debt or an equity or something else uh, of value that can be sent or traded. Now, how do you do that? Typically, these assets are stored in a wallet. And so a wallet can either be custodial, meaning there's a company that maintains a wallet and you use its services. You can have a wallet with a company like Coinbase or uh, a similar company, an exchange of that type, and they have custody of your funds. Or you can have a non-custodial wallet. You can have a piece of software on your phone. 
You can have a piece of hardware that plugs into your computer. You can even have a piece of paper that has your passcodes on it. And that allows you to store and access your assets yourself. And should you want to trade them, uh, you can kind of do that in three ways. One is through a centralized exchange, again, like a Coinbase, where there's a custodial wallet. You put your funds in, other people put your funds in, and then you 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 request orders and your order to, to buy is matched with someone who wants to sell and vice versa. There are decentralized exchanges where there's no entity in the middle, just a computer protocol that allows you to trade cryptocurrencies with other people or entities without a, a centralized entity in the middle, or you can do it directly peer-to-peer -peer with someone else who has a, a cryptocurrency wallet. Talking about that piece of piece of paper and having your password on, I'm sure I heard a story once, and I don't know if you're aware of it, of a guy who lost his password that was written on the piece of paper. In fact, there have been studies done that show that 1%, 2% of all Bitcoin that's ever been created is in unrecoverable wallets on discarded computers or or with people who have somehow forgotten their password. And someone looking for that? <laughs> <laughs> Very hard, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. So so we'll move on to kind of regulators. This is, this is obviously a um, relatively new new area, although it's well established. And within the context of, of DNO, uh, directors and officers liability, we're always interested in what the regulators are doing and how they're acting. So Rachel, could you outline the current position with respect to the position of, of governments and, and regulators on crypto kind of in a nutshell again, um, and how you, how you see this kind of developing in the future? Well, thanks, Owen. It's an excellent question. And the short answer is we are sort of in the Wild West when it comes to regulation of cryptocurrencies. What we're seeing is many of the U.S. federal law enforcement agencies kind of reaching in and trying to exert control here. For example, the SEC uh, is taking the position that many virtual currencies, many cryptocurrencies are securities and should be registered with the SEC. Uh, we see the CFTC, the Commodities Futures Trading Com Commission, espousing that many cryptocurrencies are commodities and that trading in cryptocurrencies is their purview. We see the IRS, you know, taking the position that cryptocurrencies are a form of property and that uh, essentially profits made from selling them need to be reported. And in fact, I think people will see on their 2021 20, 1040 income tax returns that there's now a specific question from the IRS asking if people have received, sold, exchanged, or otherwise disposed of cryptocurrencies. So, you know, we have all kinds of regulations stepping into the mix here, not least of which is the Department of Justice, which has created uh, what amounts essentially to a task force to focus on cryptocurrencies and money laundering associated with them. And even the, the banking world, the OCC and the Federal Reserve have formed, uh, if you will, almost like an exploratory committee to study cryptocurrencies and figure out how they can be folded into mainstream banking. So, you know, what this means in the short term is that there's a lot of confusion in this space. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, there's a lot of different regulators kind of fighting for control, um, sometimes working together well, sometimes not working together so well. And it's a very, very interesting and kind of volatile time to, to be in this space and work in this regulatory world. And what all of this really stems from, which I think is, is so interesting, is regulators basically apply 
applying old models mm-hmm. to a new form of currency. And, and that tension, because the old models don't really quite fit, uh, is what's sort of ca- causing all this friction. Well, this is an absolute myriad of regulators getting to grips with, trying to understand, and then thinking about new ways to regulate and, and laws and all the rest of it. So trying to put my sort of director and officer hat on, and, and um, it's kind of an area that's rife with kind of risk and confusion, like you say. So thank you, Rachel, for that. Despite all that uncertainty, we still, or it's my sense certainly is that there is a kind of growing trend of as an alternative investment, if you like, companies, investment funds, pensions, pension funds, even governments investing in crypto. So within that context, why are, you know, Alan, Rachel, why are those organizations investing in cryptocurrency or crypto assets? What are the upsides and downsides? Well, I think the the upside is clear is the potential that these assets grow dramatically in value and that investors are able to realize venture-like gains in their investments as opposed to what we've seen more traditionally from traditional equities or debt or things of that nature. Um, And this is partially due to the fact that crypto assets and native cryptocurrencies of blockchain protocols allow an entity, a business that wants to invest to basically try to capture a piece of the value of the protocol and the network that's associated with it, in a sense, to directly access the value of a, of a, of a network that might be created uh, without going through the step of owning equity in a company and be de- being dependent on the whims of the company as to as to dividends or as to stock values or things of that nature. So there's a direct there's an ability to directly access value that sits at the uh, that potential that sits at the at the center of the ability to invest. Now there are a number of risks involved with that, some of which uh, involve very predominantly the the regulatory risk that Rachel laid out. Is it is there any other reason you think why comp- like are there any other countries outside the US that are kind of do, doing more of this? You see um, more than the US, or where maybe it's more where maybe the regulatory environment's more developed. Well, I think we're actually seeing a trend in the rest of the world where the the regulatory environment is, number one, becoming much more developed, and number two, is converging in the sense that regulators in the European Union are beginning to view crypto assets in a similar way to regulators in Switzerland and the United Kingdom and Singapore and Hong Kong, um, and then regulators in jurisdictions like Bermuda and the Bahamas, Gibraltar and Malta, all are kind of coming to a similar view on how to regulate crypto assets and are putting in place or working on putting into place comprehensive regulations covering the different types of crypto assets that do different things. In many ways, the United States is kind of an outlier in the way, as, as Rachel characterized, that our regulatory environment is, is really much more like the Wild West with different regulators doing different things that are different from each other and different from what we're seeing overseas. To kind of follow up on what, what you and Alan were saying, you know, with all this uncertainty, particularly in the U.S. and all these different regulators in the mix and, and really, you know, all this volatility that surrounds cryptocurrencies, we get asked a lot, you know, why would anyone bother with this? And in, in addition to all the, you know, the excellent reasons that, that Alan explained, I think a lot of people, particularly Americans, 
don't understand what it's like to be excluded from the mainstream financial system and how cryptocurrencies solve that problem. Um, so, you know, for example, in the US and, you know, in, in, you know, like the UK, for example, where the currencies are very stable um, and where there's, they have, you know, we have some of the predominant currencies in the world and there's not inflation that's out of control and, you know, the government's you know, are basically stable and not corrupt, then yes, you know, cryptocurrencies kind of probably seem a little offbeat and, or, or, you know, if you want to take the extreme position that someone like Warren Buffett does, you know, maybe even look a little like rat poison as he famously called them. But if you live in a jurisdiction that has a corrupt government, has an unstable financial system, you know, where you are maybe excluded from working with a currency that's stable and instead you're subject to, you know, Know, terrible inflation, then something like a cryptocurrency starts to have a lot more appeal because it allows you to get around your, your broken financial system and still have a medium of exchange and value that will allow you to participate in the world's economy. So all those kind of a lot of developing countries, they see that attraction and all, all, the, all the people that live there see that attraction and decentralization. And that's why you see countries like El Salvador, you know, turning to, to Bitcoin as a more mainstream form of currency. Okay. And so rapidly developing area and lots of uncertainty and confusion. We think we, we like to think about litigation risks as, as well. Nate, what sort of litigation risks um, do you see that are associated with investing in cryptocurrency, crypto assets for directors and officers? Yeah, for directors and officers in particular, I think it's no surprise that we would be very focused on disclosure as an area of risk, making sure that disclosures are capturing what the exposures are. I think that's probably more straightforward for companies that are focused on crypto investing and crypto assets. I think that it could be a little bit trickier and, and there's no one size fits all approach, but it could be trickier for companies that have forms of indirect exposure. For example, a company who's, if you're a consulting firm, your major client accounting for a large percentage of revenues is a crypto company. Should you disclose that? Is there some additional disclosure you should make? There's no single right answer, but it's certainly something things should something that people should be thinking about. Or I think Alan can speak to this in more detail that there are lots of ways to mitigate this risk. But what are the risks in addition to investing of crypto acceptance as a form of payment? Um, that can come with additional risks. And just making sure that all those disclosures are are tight and ironclad. I also think that the existence of regulatory ambiguity is, in addition to regulatory exposure, can be a source, of course, of private litigation exposure. Often what we see in a derivative case or, or another form of DNO lawsuit is an allegation that somebody violated a regulation or did not act in the face of a known duty, as the, as the Delaware standard would say. So that's another area where there could be exposure that goes along with, with uh, regulatory investigations, regulatory actions, negative comments by regulators that people should also be aware of and be keeping on their radar for private litigation risk. 
in addition to all the the excellent places Nate mentioned, um, another area kind of of risk, you know, that we're seeing and, and director and officer concern is in the M&A space, uh, particularly around the M&A due diligence space, because a lot of companies are now, you know, jumping on the crypto bag bandwagon. They want to begin accepting payment in cryptocurrencies because really, you know, if you accept cash and you accept checks and you accept credit cards, I mean, cryptocurrency is sort of the next natural follow on to that. Um, and so sometimes when they're acquiring uh, arms, you know, that that accept payments in crypto or working with exchanges or working with companies to manage this for them, they really have to be very careful about the type of due diligence they do before bolting on or acquiring those types of companies and services. Because you know, as we've talked about with this Wild West regulatory atmosphere, there are still a lot of concerns around money laundering and uh, criminal activity. And before, you know, companies kind of jump into the fray, they really need to be careful to do the appropriate amount and type of due diligence. Right. And I was just thinking as well around with volatility um, with respect to if you're accepting payment, and I think of net reading about Netflix, I think was they could take Bitcoin and you're doing due diligence on a company. I, I just don't know the answer to this. I don't know if anyone knows, but what happens so when someone accepts the money, uh, accepts the payment in, in say Bitcoin, what, what happens internally to that Bitcoin? Does it sit there as Bitcoin or do they convert it to something else? I don't know. I mean, it's really a question that each company gets to answer itself. A company that accepts payment in Bitcoin can do it in a couple of ways. Number one, it can use a third party service a payment processor in, in, in effect that receives the cryptocurrency and then converts it into fiat currency before the company ever touches it. Second, the company can receive cryptocurrency directly, can maintain a, a, and operate a wallet or a set of wallets, receive cryptocurrency, and then choose to convert it either at that moment or, or shortly after into a fiat currency of its choice. And third is, the, is a company can, can accept a cryptocurrency and then decide to hold it, you know, short, medium, or long-term as that cryptocurrency or even to use that cryptocurrency to divest, exchange some of that cryptocurrency for other types of cryptocurrencies and hold those over a medium or longer term. Right. So lots of options there. Okay. So we've talked about some of the litigation risks left directors and officers and some of the litigation risks. If, you, if you're advising a company that is investing in cryptocurrencies, what sorts of advice are you providing with them with respect to mitigating against those risks in respect to regulatory risks and potential litigation? So I think some of those risks have already been uh, been noted in terms of disclosures and holding. I'll note just a few of the regulatory risks and then pass to my colleagues. As Rachel noted, there are anti-money laundering and your customer risks that are associated with actually accepting cryptocurrency. So you have to have a compliance program in place for actually handling cryptocurrency. That's similar in many ways to a regular type of payment processor requirements and different in important and substantial ways in others. Second, you have to have a posture and approach with respect to some of the gray areas of regulation that Rachel noted, in particular with respect to securities and commodities laws and regulations and the uncertainty around whether the cryptocurrency or cryptocurrencies you're accepting, purchasing, holding, trading are or may one day be characterized as securities or commodities and what the impact of that is. A third has to do with tax. Um, cryptocurrencies are treated differently from other from U.S. 
fiat currency, for example, by the IRS with respect to tax rules. Cryptocurrency is considered property by the IRS, not currency. And so transactions or taxable events in cryptocurrency can bring short and long-term capital gains uh, as, as transactions in any other type of property would, as opposed to the ways in which currency is handled. So those are some of the regulatory risks that we highlight for companies that are that seek to do business in or purchase or sell cryptocurrencies. Uh, I think some of my colleagues may have some other thoughts on um, on some on other types of risk mitigation measures. Yeah, so I can I can jump in here for one second. So Alan definitely I think covered the landscape there. One thing I think that's a little bit unique to cryptocurrencies is the particular care that companies have to exert not to run afoul of sanctions and um, FinCEN requirements. Uh, Because, you know, due to the decentralized nature of cryptocurrency, you know, the fact that people from all over the world can and are turning to it more and more as a, a more mainstream form of currency, people in these jurisdictions that are prohibited um, from doing business with with uh, U.S. citizens can now access cryptocurrency and, and essentially join part of the market. And so it, it's, I think, particularly incumbent on businesses who are accepting cryptocurrency to make sure that they have the appropriate tools in place to ensure, for example, they're not doing business with sanctioned or blocked countries, you know, like Iran or Syria, for example. It's, it's a little harder to police that with something like Bitcoin than it is with a more mainstream form of currency. So, and this is Nate, I've already given my my thoughts on disclosure. I'm curious to hear if Charles has anything to add to that in terms of mitigating litigation risk for D's and O's. Yeah, I think disclosure to me is the one that, that kind of rises above all else. And, and I think you have to think a little more expansively because crypto is relatively new. Uh, and one thing that jumped out at me is just yesterday, crypto website, crypto.com, which has grown so big that it's got the naming rights to where the Lakers and Clippers play in the NBA, you know, shut down all withdrawals because of some unauthorized activity. So you've got this sort of pervasive risk of sort of hacking, technological failures and the like. So if you're a company that does business in the crypto space, if your key partners, if your key vendors or, or, or whomever are in crypto, you've got this sort of catastrophe risk that if it isn't, you know, properly disclosed, sort of then becomes a roadmap for, you know, either DNO litigation, securities litigation or the like. Yeah, I can imagine there's some very carefully crafted disclosures. Um because 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 the these scenarios, like I say, are so extreme. So get the proper advice I get on that on that on those disclosures, absolutely. So that's some some risk mitigation, which is really interesting to hear about. We really like to talk about some real examples too on the podcast. Charles, has there been any can you talk to any interesting real-life crypto-related litigation that you could talk about? And um, what kind of litigation do you expect to see in the future as well regarding crypto? Oh, yeah, sure. So with the rise of crypto, there's, of course, been a rise in litigation, you know, particularly here in the U.S., where litigation is, is a bit of a national pastime. You know, I could go on and on and on, uh, but I'll just mention kind of a few categories of, of recent litigation. The first bucket I'd mention is the massive regulatory litigation that's been triggered by the uncertainty that we've talked about a whole bunch already, where it's not clear whether a particular digital asset is or is not a security or is or is not regulated. That itself can lead to litigation. You've got the SEC suing a whole bunch of entities for what it's claiming were unregistered coin offerings because the allegation is that the digital asset was a security, needed to be registered, there needed to be robust disclosures. 
the biggest case there is the SEC versus Ripple case, where Ripple is you know fighting tooth and nail to say that its token uh, XRP uh, is not a security. The SEC is contending otherwise. Everybody's watching that one. There's a whole bunch of private litigation. You know, the buyers of an unregistered security, at least in the United States, have a right to put back that security to the seller and get all their money back. And so the same question about what is or is not the securities led to a bunch of private litigation. I'd say a second distinct bucket of crypto-related litigation is what I'll call ordinary commercial disputes that are turbocharged by the fact that there's so much money in crypto. So anytime there's something new and, and a whole bunch of money flowing around, you can find reasons to sue. And, and I think the kind of apex example of that is, is the Kleiman versus Wright case in Florida. And so that was a case where the estate of an individual, a guy named Dave Kleiman, sued an individual named Craig Wright uh, over business partnerships supposedly gone bad. And the allegation here was that these two men were present at the creation of Bitcoin. This guy, Craig Wright, claims to be the inventor of Bitcoin, although it's a dubious claim. And, and, climbing, and they were fighting over this corpus of 1.1 million Bitcoin that were among the first created. And Kleiman was looking to, to collect $170 billion in damages. The jury ended up ruling for the plaintiff for the Kleiman side, but only, and, and I put only in quotes, to the tune of $100 million dollars. And, and uh, Kleiman declared himself victorious, having lost an, you know, a nine-figure jury verdict because it was so much smaller than was being sought. And, of course, people in the crypto world are deadly curious as to whether, does Craig Wright really have that money? Did he have anything to do with the creation of Bitcoin? I think it's pretty dubious, but it's been, it's been good sport. And I think that case is kind of emblematic of a whole wide range of, of what I'll call ordinary commercial litigation, wh where kind of the stakes can be higher, the facts can be a little more spicy because it's in crypto. So that's kind of a second bucket. And the final bucket I'll mention is, is what I'll call consumer litigation. And I think this is related a little bit to the, to the regulatory issues because it's an open area of uncertainty. You've got a whole bunch of retail participants buying and selling crypto with, you know, without the sort of regulatory apparatus that would protect, you know, say something comparable in stocks and bonds. And, and just one case I'd mentioned, I think, falls in that bucket is a new class action that was filed in federal court in California uh, against a bunch of celebrities that were promote, promoting a new token called Ethereum Max. And so they sued uh, Floyd Mayweather, who's famous for being a boxer, Paul Pierce, who's a famous uh, NBA player, and then Kim Kardashian. And, and, and the allegation is that these celebrities you know, promoted this token to inflate their old holdings in it, and there's really nothing to it. And so you really have to be careful, you know, in any context of promoting these you know, new and uncertain tokens if you really don't know what's behind them. Because if consumers are just, you know, retail on the street, people are buying them, this gives them under consumer protection laws, which are different in all 50 states, an opening to, to then sue. And so there's a lot, anyway, there's a lot of consumer litigation anytime that, that new tokens, new digital assets are, are touching the retail consumer. Yeah, and that sounds actually comparable to all the celebrities you see promoting SPACs to uh, retail investors as well. Oh, yeah, very similar. And, and you may have noticed, and you guys get these commercials in the UK, but you've got Matt Damon here promoting all over the TV, crypto.com, and, and he has this highly produced commercial where he says fortune favors the brave and he's encouraging retail investors to get in there. And, and you know, he's received a lot of criticism because, you know, you have to pause and think is, should you be getting your investment advice from Matt Damon, one. <laughs> and, and, and two, is this really where the sort of regular, you know, retail person should be putting their right. money? And, you know, there isn't always the ordinary robust disclosures with securities. This isn't buying a Fortune 500 company with, you know, 10Ks and all of that. You, you really have to be careful. 
it's fascinating hearing but i love i love hearing about the litigation and i'm, I'm sure there was um plenty more of it to come as you say it's a it's a national pastime it is in other countries too so don't don't beat yourself down too much i think <laughs> um, so so there's some of the some of the cases and we, we kind of touched on this a bit already but the, just around the volatility of value of some of some of the currencies but for example on bitcoin you know the long-term trend is upwards but similarly to to just any uh, any kind of new emerging fast-growing thing that's the hot thing that everyone's getting to you know sometimes the bubble does burst so maybe nate could you give some horizon scanning on what what happens if this if this bubble bursts at some point what do you see how do you see it playing out yeah and that i think ties together all the different threads we've been discussing when you see a bubble pop um, if indeed it does you're going to see a lot of scrutiny of disclosures you're going to see uptick in regulatory activity and increased risk from the Wild West that Rachel described. You're going to see in courts and in litigation, as we always do, applying old models, something that we discussed earlier in this podcast as being very relevant um, to Charles's point about arguments that you can put back an unregistered security. Obviously, that put right becomes very valuable. If there's a drop in value and to the extent anybody says it's an unregistered security, there's real risk that that put could be exercised or could be could be used. And in all of these different areas, you know, we know that if there is a drop, if there is a, a precipitous drop in value in, in crypto, if the bubble bursts, as you put it, there will be enterprising lawyers all around the country finding ways to put these theories to work and go try to recover uh, what well, could be some very, very large losses because, as in Charles's example, you know, a hundred million dollars being a victory for the defendant, uh, these numbers can be sky high when we're talking about these sorts of price increases and this degree of volatility. And then there could be issues around whether those defendants can pay once the value of the asset has dropped. What's the source of recovery for a plaintiff with that large? type of claim. And then you can get into asset recovery and judgment enforcement types of issues, which when you add in the the cyber elements and the like could be particularly complex. So there is a, a large, almost limitless universe of ways it could play out in litigation. I think the one thing we do know is that there would be, in the event of a crash, a large amount of energy and creativity put into attempts to recoup lost value through all the sorts of theories that we've been talking about today, disclosure, registration, and just old old common law theories like unjust enrichment um, and the like that I would expect people to be asserting. Just as you were talking now, it got me thinking, uh, when you were talking about recoverability, I think it has, I'll be careful what I have to, I say about this, but on the insurance side of things, you know, people, uh, the, the, the insurers that are insuring directors and officers, companies, it has implications for them because they need to start thinking, you know, you're thinking about policy wordings and definitions of loss, damages, compensation, all the rest of it. And even for crime, I'm thinking of crime insurance too. There's implications there. So so there's a lot, lot to think about. So there's definitely a lot for insurers to think about in this space. And I think you've just hit on a lot of the high notes. But one thing we've certainly seen is um, an uptick in policyholders who are claiming that their cryptocurrency was stolen and then are um, asserting that it should be or was uh, covered by the various insurance policies that they have. And sometimes this can precipitate a fight around 
well, what exactly is cryptocurrency? Is it property, like the IRS says, or is it currency, you know, like the CFTC wants to say? How exactly do you plug it in to, again, these sort of old models that don't really quite apply to cryptocurrency? And so what we're seeing is a lot of insurance companies having to redraft their insurance policies to specifically peg cryptocurrency as whatever type of asset, you know, they, they want to, to peg it for coverage purposes. So th- thank you all so much for that. I think that as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a developing area and there's, there's lots for everyone to learn. And I think people don't read enough anymore. So I'd like to ask, <laughs> has anyone got any book, you know, for beginners in this space? Because there is a lot to learn about. Are there any books you'd sort of recommend for listeners to, to go away and, and, and get to kind of clip, to kind of school up on all this stuff? Yes. Uh, we often recommend the book, The Age of Cryptocurrency by Paul Vigna, V-I-G-N-A, and Michael Casey. Both were Wall Street Journal reporters on the kind of nascent crypto beat who wrote this book together. Vigna is still at the Wall Street Journal. Michael Casey has kind of gone 100% into the crypto industry at this point. And it's a it's a very good, an excellent resource for beginners in getting up to speed on what is cryptocurrency and all the many of the issues that we discussed. Great, thank you. And I'll do I'll go one one more with 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 new technology again and new things. People like to talk about the sky falling in and it kind of being the end of the world. Whereas you know, it, it, crypto assets, cryptocurrency can actually be, as I said, with with kind of people that are cut out from the traditional system. It's a fantastic tool. So are there any kind of false narratives out there you think that that we can kind of put to bed regarding the kind of negativity that surrounds crypto assets? Oh, and that's a great question. And one of the predominant narratives is that cryptocurrency is simply the currency of criminals. Um, And that really is just not true anymore, if it ever was true. To be sure, cryptocurrency is used by criminals, but, you know, guess what? Money is used by criminals by criminals. Um, most money laundering is, is done with, you know, regular currency. So, so there's always going to be the risk of money laundering whenever you have money. And as we're seeing, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to read the Wall Street Journal, for example, on any given day and not see some article about cryptocurrency. And that's just because it is becoming more and more mainstream, as we've talked about. It really is kind of another form of payment. Um, and, and I think the other thing that's important for people to understand understand, you know, to to understand why it's not really going away is because in addition to its value as a form of investment that I think, um, you know, Alan and Nate have have spoken to, and in addition to its value to people who are kind of excluded from the mainstream financial markets, the other group of people that really love cryptocurrency are young people. And I think anybody who has kids who play, you know, video games and sort of understand that whole game gaming culture that oftentimes uses tokens can easily understand why when those kids turn into, you know, 20 and 30 something people, they just have an entirely different mindset around electronics um, and connecting with others through gaming and the internet, such that the use of cryptocurrency is far more natural to that generation than it is, you know, for example, to people in their 50s and 60s, you know, and so for, for that reason, I just think there's this whole groundswell of, you know, younger people coming up through through the world who are going to embrace cryptocurrency such that it's not really going to go away. Wow, incredible. 
I absolutely loved that discussion. Yeah, yeah, really fascinating uh, 30 minute discussion on, on all things crypto and how it's impacting businesses and disrupting established norms and, and challenging regulatory authorities. And I think that last point, Owen, is, is, is particularly interesting. Some of the things we talk about, unprecedented, challenging established norms, they can sound cliche, but it is a genuine challenge for, for regulatory authorities, isn't it? So what were your key takeaways from, from that discussion? Yeah, so like many, I'm still someone com- completely finding my way with this topic as well. But the main takeaways for me were as follows. Firstly, the regulatory environment you just touched on, it, it, it kind of feels all over the place. This is developing all the time, so we need to keep a close eye on this. And in the meantime, you've got different regulators doing different things, all at different stages of development. There's this tension between applying old models that don't quite fit. So is that there is that tension there. And I think we just have to accept that with all that going on, we're kind of going to be operating, we're all kind of operating in areas of grey where there's lack of clarity right now. So prudent thing to do really is to ensure you're, you're keeping track of developments and, and taking advice from people like Septo who are kind of experts in this field. Secondly, in terms of the risks, of course, that regulatory uncertainty gives rise to risk because it's it can be unclear how you comply. And then there's the risk of inadvertently breaching some rule or law and, and then being targeted. Uh, the other main ones we identified there were risks around disclosure, obvi- disclosures, obviously, uh, what your company's exposure to cryptocurrency-related risks is, what what those risks are, how they're specific to you, and both direct and indirect. In the indirect example, you know, major customers involved in, in cryptocurrency, thinking about that. In addition, things like know your customer rules, which we're very familiar with, risks around inadvertently doing business with people in sanctioned countries. Potentially, that's more pronounced here. And then in the M&A space, I think it was Rachel made the point, it's a, it's a new area where increased due diligence is required when reviewing target companies. That was a long one for the second one. <laughs> so the third one, um, just, to, just the types of litigation that can arise, kind of traditional in that it's, it's private derivative litigation, shareholder litigation, regulatory investigations, and the consumer litigation as people and companies promote investment in cryptocurrency. But I thought the most interesting one, they were, you know, what Charles described actually is ordinary commercial litigation, really spicy facts, potentially humongous sums in, in dispute, ferric victories. Um, and then on top, you have issues around enforcement and recoverability, which would keep lawyers, which sort of issues that keep lawyers very busy. So that's litigation. And finally, we talked about the bubble bursting and yes, yeah, that could happen. If it does, people would expect you would expect people to be suffering huge losses, and there to be enterprises, enterprising lawyers waiting in the wings. But what I actually think is more likely to happen is the peaks and troughs, as we've as we've seen until now, and we we continue to see that until there is a more stable and established regulatory environment. And we had useful reminders here also from Rachel about other things to consider and thinking about other perspectives. So when thinking about the future, first one was the perspective of the people who are actually cut out and excluded from established financial systems or live in countries where the local currency is volatile or where there is extreme inflation. I'm guessing you could see even more of that post-COVID and even in other countries. Crypto is an incredible way for those people to access the the global economy. So just thinking about that perspective as, as something that's important when thinking about the future. And then finally, I just think on the young people point, we have a generation of young people growing up who have entirely different mindset around electronics, connecting people through the internet, as, as Rachel said. And to them, the use of cryptocurrency will be a far more natural 
um, process to that generation. So in summary, it's not going away. It's going to become more and more mainstream. So we all need to get to grips with it, understand it, as this will change the way people conduct business and therefore the risk environment for directors and officers and companies. Yeah, in terms of people getting to grips with it, that will naturally include insurers, right, as well. And and, yeah, putting my captive hat on for a second, quite a few of the areas we've seen new captives formed has been crypto type companies involved with cryptocurrency, uh, kind of custodians, wallet companies, uh, Gemini, for example, Coinbase, they've ended up setting up captives purely for DNO. Yeah. Um, because they can't get the capacity in the market at present. Yeah, because the insurers are always just that bit behind. So the, the quicker people can get up to speed, the quicker you can provide solutions for those industries. You understand them better, like you say. Well, next up in this season, we'll be beginning our Inside Track mini-series with an episode focusing on litigation funding. As mentioned at the top, the best way to make sure you get every episode and that next episode in particular, downloaded straight to your device is to subscribe or follow the Rising Edge DNO podcast on your app of choice. In the meantime, Owen, stay well and we'll see you then. Thanks, Richard. See you next time.